A number of people have asked me where the inspiration to tell stories comes from, and my answer is always the same. My father was a great storyteller, and he inspired me to continue the tradition. He grew up on a ranch called Rayado in New Mexico, on the Santa Fe Trail, not far from Cimarron. Rayado had been settled first by Kit Carson, who was joined by his friend Lucian Maxwell, who, through marriage to Luz Bubien, the young Belle of Taos, ended up inheriting a land grant half the size of New Mexico. Dad would share stories of his boyhood in a wild country where the names Clay Allison, Kit Carson, and Pancho Griego were legend. As a boy, he would play in the ruins of the dwelling next door that Kit Carson had built with logs and mud. In 1922, Wade Phillips, an oil man, began buying large tracts of land, and Dad's family sold their property and moved to Sacramento, California. Phillips later granted much of that land to the Boy Scouts, and that became Philmont Boy Scout Ranch, which today entertains 16,000 scouts a year, giving them an opportunity to enjoy the experiences of the West. Dad had always told me that it's not size or strength that determines a man. It's character and courage. You judge all men not by their skin color or where they come from, he would tell me, or what they own, but by their character and how they respond to tough situations. If you get bucked off a horse, you get back on. If you get thrown again, you get back on again. And so it goes with life. Nothing should stop a man who knows he's in the right and just keeps on coming. El Fego Baca was one of those men. He had courage and heart. This is his story. The small town of Reserve, New Mexico, once called Frisco, is situated on Route 12 in the Gila National Forest, about 12 miles east of the Arizona-New Mexico border. It is the county seat of Catron County, the state's largest and least densely populated county. Back in the time of our story, it was part of Socorro County. Reserve sits in the middle of what was a vast cattle and timber empire. At 5,700 feet altitude, it is surrounded by stately ponderosa pines and bordered by the Francisco River. The area includes ruins from the Mugion and Anasazi tribes, as well as petroglyphs and historic Old West sites. In the 1860s, Mexican-Americans established a string of villages along the Francisco River running south of the town of Frisco, naming them the Upper, Lower, and Middle San Francisco Plazas. In the late 1870s, Anglo settlers and ranchers began arriving, and businesses began to spring up to support the influx of people, one large group of which was Texas cowboys who worked at the ranches that were taking root in the area. Picture your Hollywood version of a western town, complete with boardwalk, false storefronts, the jail and the courthouse, a few bars, and dusty streets, and you're looking at reserve. Now picture a group of drunken cowboys using their colts to make a Mexican townie dance on the same dusty street for their entertainment, and you'll have the town of reserve in 1884. El Fego Baca was 19 years old in 1884. His father, a lawman, had taught El Fago as a youngster how to stand up for himself as a Mexican-American boy growing up in Kansas among Anglo boys. When his family moved to New Mexico, about 120 miles east of Reserve, his father had become a lawman and got in a gunfight with two gringo cowhands who challenged his authority, sending them both to Boot Hill, which, for you city folks, means the graveyard. As a result, the elder Baca, notwithstanding the fact that he had acted like any lawman should, 
was placed behind bars, and the younger Baca had to fend for himself, learning how to use six guns, which he did well, wearing two, and becoming proficient at drawing and firing. He had read the dime novels in the Police Gazette, which were popular at the time, and his heroes were legends like Wyatt Earp and Kit Carson, whose examples of courage inspired him. He even ordered a replica deputy badge, which he wore on his vest. At the same time, he had dreams of becoming a lawyer and began politicking for recognition so he could reach a position of importance in Socorro County, knowing that political power, not the gun, would be ultimately the force that would bring justice to the people of Socorro County. In 1884, Baca was working for a local Socorro merchant when a Spanish-American deputy sheriff came into the store and was talking about the problems he was having in his district. The deputy, Pedro Serencino, was an officer in Frisco, also called San Francisco Plaza on the Francisco River in western Socorro County. There were actually three towns strung up and down along that river, the towns named Upper, Lower, and Middle Plaza. The deputy explained that there was no problem keeping the peace with the Spanish Americans who had settled there to farm, but the Texas cattlemen that had moved into the area to take advantage of their rich grazing lands were making life a hell for the natives, frequently making them dance to a tune played by their six guns and killing them at times in the process. Frankly, the deputy admitted, he was powerless to stop them. He told Baca the harrowing story of a native everyone called El Bruto, who had the misfortune of being captured by the Texans, who stretched him out on a store counter and castrated him like a calf. Another local was used for target practice. El Fago was furious. He offered to return to Frisco with the deputy. He strapped on his guns, stuck his mail-order star badge in the pocket of his Prince Albert coat, and returned with Saraceno to Frisco. He wanted to help the deputy and, at the same time, do some politicking in Frisco to gain some support for his try at elected office in the county. He stayed with the deputy in the lower plaza, where he started campaigning, and soon found himself in the upper plaza, which was also called Milligan's Plaza, after a store and saloon run by a tough Irishman called Milligan. Milligan sold a potent firewater, which, at the moment of Baca's first visit, caused a cowboy named McCarty who worked for a rancher named Slaughter, to begin shooting up the town. As the bullets started flying, Baca hunted up the local justice of the peace, Celso Lopez, to ask why Celso and his friends allowed this kind of thing to take place in their town. Celso shrugged, pointing out that there were many gringos around, all of them well-armed, and that if he arrested one cowboy, his friends would make serious trouble for the townspeople. El Fago figured that this was already serious enough, and he told Lopez that if this was allowed to continue, it would only get worse. McCarty's shots were breaking windows, people were diving for cover, and someone was going to get killed. El Fago pinned on his own star, loosened his pistols in their holsters, and walked out on the street, arresting McCarty. He then brought the drunken prisoner to Lopez and demanded that justice be carried out. But Lopez refused out of cowardice and concern for the town. Well, if Lopez wouldn't hear the case, Baca demanded, he would take McCarty to the county seat in Socorro for trial. Since it was too late to start for Socorro that night, he escorted his prisoner down to the middle plaza to spend the night. What Baca didn't know was that the minute he had arrested McCarty, riders had dashed from the upper plaza in every direction to tell fellow Texans that one of their group had been arrested. And as the story grew in telling, it was not only an arrest, 
but a full-scale armed rebellion by the Mexicans. By now it was morning, and about 80 armed Texas cowboys were descending upon the middle plaza, arriving in groups from all directions. One slaughter ranch group, led by a foreman named Perham, arrived at Middle Plaza and demanded that Baca release McCarty. El Fago's reply was a jaunty wave of his pistol and a declaration that he'd give the cowboys a count of three to get out of town. He began to count, and on three, he pulled his trigger. All hell broke loose. This kind of attitude from a Mexican was unheard of. It was as if a steer that they had been pushing around all day had suddenly stood up on his hind legs and roped a cowboy. They started shooting at Baca. He fired back, hitting one cowboy in the knee, who screamed. Pelham's horse then reared up and fell backwards, crushing the ranch foreman, mortally wounding him. The cowboys, without leadership and now panicking, hastily retreated to regroup and plan their retaliation. Early the next morning, with Baca still in town, a group of Americans, led by a man named J.H. Cook, took action to avert serious trouble and visited Justice Lopez, convincing him to try McCarty. They then approached Baca and convinced him to bring his prisoner to Upper Plaza for a trial. He did, and the trial was over in 15 minutes, the result being to declare the cowboy guilty and fining him $5 for disturbing the peace. That should have ended it. However... As Baca stepped out of the justice's office, he was greeted by an army of slaughter cowboys, mounted and spoiling for a fight. Recognizing one of them, Baca said, Good morning, Mr. Wilson. The one named Wilson glared back at Baca and answered, No good morning to you, you dirty Mexican bastard, which was followed by a shot from one of the other 80 cowboys in the street. El Fago's two pistols appeared in his hands and began firing as he quickly backed into an alley and down a little dirt lane that led behind the courthouse. There was only one place he could take cover, a tiny jacal or hut, which had been made by driving logs into the ground and plastering the openings between them with mud. Inside were a native woman with her two children. Vamos, cried Baca, hurrying the three outside and sending them down the lane away from harm. Quickly, he shut the wooden door and waited, assessing the table, chairs, small cook stove, and the flooring, which was about one foot below the level of the ground outside. In moments, the slaughter group rode up, angry and shouting. One rider, Jim Hearn, a tough Texan, hauled his rifle out of its boot and headed for the hut, a determined look on his face. I'll get him out of there, he shouted to the others, but his words were cut off by a bullet fired from the young Baca, and he fell to the ground, dead from a shot through the heart. A couple of his friends dragged his body away. The slaughter bunch held a council of war, so to speak, although the numbers were 80 to 1, and they proceeded to surround the hut and began shooting. The time was 9 a.m., and it was a bright October morning. El Fago didn't believe he would live to see another one like it. This was the last place you would want if you were going to make a stand against overwhelming forces. He had no high ground, no ability to move position, and he was a sitting duck. The construction was flimsy at best. The stakes that formed the walls weren't very close together, and the dried mud between them was no match for bullets. The one thing he had going for him was the floor, which had been dug out so that it was about a foot below ground level. By lying flat between volleys, Vaca might be able to stay alive provided they didn't try to burn him out. The Texans were firing now by volley, the bullets penetrating everything inside the hut. 
One broom handle alone received eight holes from bullets. The door was perforated like Swiss cheese. Chunks of plaster and wood were flying everywhere inside the jacal. When El Fago rose up between volleys, he could find a target, and he did so with deadly efficiency, killing or wounding every target he saw. Lying on the floor, he looked up and spotted a plaster Paris reproduction of a saint. In a far corner of the cabin, near the window, Baca placed his hat on it and stood it up near the window, offering the cowboys an easy target. Hundreds of bullets instantly responded. Baca couldn't help but smile, hoping that maybe God would come to his defense over this injustice to sainthood. The gun battle stretched on through the day. As 6 p.m. neared, four Texans were dead and many more were wounded. Baca was still unscratched. The cowboys had strung ropes between nearby houses from which they hung blankets, behind which they were able to move freely beyond Baca's vision. Suddenly, around 6 p.m., a barrage of shots from the Texans cut part of the stakes that held his roof up, and the flimsy roof collapsed partially, pinning El Fego under a load of debris. For the next two hours, he laid under the pile, listening to the bullets singing over his head. Finally, as darkness fell, he pulled himself out of the pile and stirred up the coals in the little cook stove. He found some meat, made some tortillas and coffee, and had a bite to eat. In later years, he told a biographer that he really wasn't hungry, he just wanted to piss off the Texans. When the smell of tortillas and coffee reached the Texans, they were furious. It was time to bury the little mechs with the tin star. Right about midnight, the attackers tossed a stick of dynamite that wrecked half the hut, but left Baca alive in the one remaining corner that he had dived into upon seeing the lit fuse about to detonate the dynamite. After the dynamite, things tended to quiet down a bit for El Fago, either because the blast had deafened him or the cowboys had decided to get some sleep before digging his remains out in the coming daylight. Maybe a little bit of both. At dawn, the Texans were amazed to see a little curl of smoke coming up from a still intact chimney jacal, and soon the smell of cooking wafted out into the morning air in the plaza. El Fago was cooking breakfast. Thereupon, all hell broke loose as the Texans let go of every cartridge they had in an effort to destroy the hut, splinter by splinter. At mid-morning, one brave cowboy fashioned a cast iron shield and quietly approached the jacal from the corner near the chimney where the roof had collapsed. He peered over the edge. Baca spotted him and shot from his position, creasing the Texan's head, sending him tumbling ass over end backwards and crawling for safety. By afternoon, the battle continued, the Texans sniping at the hut, and Baca, with a limited amount of ammunition, carefully choosing his shots and making them count. The word had traveled to all of the nearby plazas, and the Spanish-American natives were now lining the hills overlooking Upper Plaza to watch the festivities. None went to help, but it was a damn good show. As 6 p.m. approached that second day, Mr. Cook again prevailed, asking for the help of Francisco Naranjo and a deputy sheriff who had been called in named Ross. The three men approached the jacal, and Naranjo called out to Baca. Come on out, it's all right. The besieged Baca could hardly believe his ears, at least the one that could still hear after the dynamite. He peered out, then returned the shout, and leaped through the window, standing where the three visitors blocked any incoming fire, guns in both his hands. 
When the Texans saw Baca out in the open, the temptation to shoot him was almost unbearable, and more than one of them were figuring the odds of what would become of him if he opened up on an Anglo deputy sheriff. The Texans advanced toward the four men, only an inspired speech by Cook reminding them what would happen if they interfered stopped them. There was much grumbling and more talk, but the battle ended with Baca agreeing to return to Socorro for trial while keeping his guns in a buckboard driven by Deputy Sheriff Ross. They started for Socorro that same night, the 80 Texans leading the pack while Deputy Ross followed in his buckboard with Baca in the back, his twin Colts, hammerback and waiting. El Fago had lived with his life on a thread For many a gunman had left him for dead And the legend was that, like El Gato the cat Nine lives at El Fago, El Gato At Baca's trial, the testimony revealed that more than 4,000 bullets had been fired into the small shack, hitting everything except Baca. Knives, forks, and spoons had bullet holes in them. A broom with eight bullet holes in the handle was shown as evidence. The door to the hut was brought forward, showing 367 bullet holes. Some of the Texans present in the courtroom expressed their opinion that Baca had a charmed life. One testified quite seriously at Baca's trial that he was convinced that if he took a gun and fired at Baca's chest from only five feet away, it wouldn't have killed him. As it went in those days, most men who had survived a battle like that had little to fear from the courts. Baca was tried twice for murder and acquitted. He then went on to a colorful and somewhat unorthodox career as a lawman and a lawyer. Death came to him quietly with his boots on in Albuquerque in 1945 at the age of 80. And for years to come, young men and women will learn the lessons of El Fago Baca and others like him that it's not size, color, or possessions that make a man. It's character and courage and knowing you're in the right and never giving up. Thanks for listening to our show at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We're available at all podcatcher sites like iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbay.fm, as well as our website at 1001storiespodcast.com. You can also join us at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. We're currently listened to in over 100 countries, and thanks to you, we're well-ranked at iTunes. Please share our show with others, and remember, iTunes users, when you see subscribe, it's free. All it means is that iTunes will deliver each new episode as we release them. So don't be timid. Hit that subscribe button. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.